If you're surrounded by people who are working towards big goals that really care about making an impact on our on our society and our culture, I think you're much more likely to uh, to step up, right, and to find ways to uh, to add value to others, but and to and to discard those excuses, that those limiting kind of thoughts that that hold us all. I mean, everybody suffers from it. Every, to this day, everyone, you know, I, I, I suffer from that. Everybody suffers from that. But you have to find ways to focus, right, on what matters the most and then drive towards those things and, uh, and believe that you can do it. On this episode, I'm speaking with John Pugh, owner at Pugh Management. John is a seasoned real estate executive who has found success during a career spanning two plus decades in the design, construction, and development arenas. He leads teams to thriving project outcomes, identifies new acquisition opportunities, and is responsible for creative deal structuring. Today, Pew Management focuses on creating value for investors and partners through placemaking, risk management, and creative problem solving. Two fun facts about John before we jump in. Number one, he played professional basketball in Australia. And number two, his artwork was exhibited at the Guggenheim Museum in New York, as well as internationally. This was a super fun conversation, so let's jump right in with John. All right, John, thanks so much for joining me on uh, on Transforming Cities today. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. So I uh, I want to dive right in. Let's jump right into the origin story of John Pugh. I know that before we get into development, before we get into professional basketball, there is a story that is John as a youngster. And I would love to know uh, what those ingredients were and what those bits and pieces were like as you were growing up. Sure, sure. It was, uh, I, I feel like I was pretty fortunate. I had a great um, great place to grow up. You know, I grew up in the, the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. And I uh, ended up playing a lot of basketball, which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit, but it was uh, a place where we were kind of on the edge of the city, right? Um, and uh, my father worked for the Navy. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, and uh, I don't know, just a great uh, great place to be for, for a while. Uh, my parents ended up splitting up uh, I was about seven years old, something like that. So that was, you know, that was a, a challenge. Uh, but I think we we learned, you know, I certainly learned a lot and uh, grew from that uh, experience. And that's, a, you know, the only way you can. Uh, and uh, but yeah, overall, it's a great place to be, great place to grow up. Uh, and we were, like I said, we were on the edge of the city, and the city was growing um, still, and it's grown way beyond. Whereas Herndon, Virginia, which is the, the town I grew up in, right next to Dallas Airport, and uh, yeah, it was a really interesting place to be. So I think uh, you know I had a farm field in my backyard. And, you know, we were in a, in a small uh, suburban development on the edge, literally on the edge of the suburbs, and uh, mm. something that was. Uh, Kind of special. I remember seeing the first, you know, the the, the development the, that went in where that farm field was, and kind of how that. I remember that at a young age. I think that was about ten or eleven years old when they built that. And uh, I don't know, just kind of my first exposure to development, seeing that that um, the creation of that um, subdivision. And yeah. Uh, and uh, anyways, it's kind of a kind of a cool cool thing. And and now. You know, now Herndon is uh, used to be on the edge of the suburbs. Now, you know, it's farmers and such, and now it's uh, firmly in the middle of the suburbs of DC. So, that's yeah, that's right. I I was gonna say I I spent about a, a decade of my life in Virginia, mostly in Central Virginia, and I went to school in um, I guess you could call it Northwest Virginia um, at JMU. But I was always up and down um, I eighty one to yeah. the DC yeah. area and. Uh, I, I remember a lot of my friends from the DC area had much more unique backgrounds in terms of, of friendships from, uh, classmates and and just friends that they had grown over the years that came from all over the world. And and one of the things that Mm -hmm. stood out from your story, um, in some of our previous conversations is that you did have the opportunity to meet a lot of, you know, cool friends from different parts of the world, different backgrounds, um, obviously different cultural backgrounds. To yours, I didn't get that sure. experience necessarily. Um, that seemed to stand out 
to you as something that was really important and, and, um, and really you feel fortunate to be able to have had that experience with those friends. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was, uh, it was my mother, uh, kind of referred to my, my school as a uh, United Nations, uh, cause there was such a great mixture of people from, from Asia, from Europe, uh, Africa. Uh, we had friends, uh, from many different places, many different cultures. And, uh, it was uh, a great way to learn uh, about people uh, and uh, get to know people and, you know, kind of jibes with my uh, experience in basketball, you know, working together with people from different places and different cultures, uh, working towards a common goal and uh, being able to find some success mm -hmm. with that. But I think I learned a lot of lessons early on. I remember a good friend of ours was, uh, was my, mine in the fifth grade was uh, from Vietnam and, uh, and I never met anyone from Vietnam and before I was 10 and uh, we went over his house and it was just like this really interesting experience, different food, different, uh, you know, different uh, ways of decorating a home, et cetera. And uh, just great, great experience, great exposure and really fortunate to have had that. Mm. I feel like it was uh, a great thing. Uh, and then, you know, going, from there, uh, in the future, to Fordham University up in New York City, uh, that was uh, one of those experiences too. Where you know, it's uh, I was comfortable there. I think partially because I had had those experiences with different different yeah. cultures. Well, one so. of those one of those friends I know was uh, I think it was a best buddy in sixth grade. You said he was from Trinidad, <laughs> and this is sort of when the sport of basketball yeah. started to make an impression on you and your life. It's what true. was that? Uh, yeah. What was that time period like? Because I know you went from uh, little John to big John pretty quickly there, <laughs> between sixth grade and twelfth grade. So what what was that? Um, I guess what was that early basketball journey like with you? And I know obviously it was with some pretty cool friends. As sure. Well. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because I I now coach my son's uh, nine ten basketball team uh, at the YMCA local YMCA here, and it's. Uh, it's funny to think about, you know, I, I, in sixth grade, I was just starting to kind of get involved in basketball. I started to get a little taller and, um, and a, a kid, his name was Eric Williams. So Olakon was his name, Olakon, but he went by Eric, Eric Williams and his family was from Trinidad and Tobago. And, uh, they were like the nicest people, good friends. Uh, and he ended up, uh, he and I basically, we played basketball, uh, every day after school. And we, we also, uh, after we'd finished playing basketball, we'd break dance. Uh, <laughs> so that was, that was a fun nice. <laughs> activity that I wouldn't have learned otherwise. That's for sure. Uh, but he, he moved from Brooklyn, New York to our neighborhood, uh, just before sixth grade started. <clears throat> and, uh, and yeah, so I was fortunate to hang out with him and get to know him. And we played a ton of basketball together. He was, a, he ended up being the point guard, uh, one of the point guards on our high school basketball team and uh great guy. Uh, and we just, you know, I learned a heck of a lot about the game of basketball, uh, playing one-on-one -on -one against him, playing two on two, three on three, four on four, every, everything you could think of, we played it. And, uh, and it was literally every day. It was, I was fortunate enough to have a basketball hoop, uh, you know, at the, basically the elementary school is right behind my house. So fortunate enough to be able to kind of wander over there and play whenever we wanted to. So, but yeah, it was awesome. Learned a ton about the game, got to know him better. And, uh, and, you know, just one of those experiences that I think, you know, looking back on it, um, allowed me to develop certain skills. A lot of other big men don't necessarily, didn't necessarily have the chance to develop because I was playing one-on-one -on -one over and over and over again, where a lot of big guys, you know, they were showing up at practice once or twice a week for their, their local team, but they weren't, out there doing it every day and uh i think that allowed me to kind of grow and, and get better so yeah and you ended up being a top top 100 player um you were on the varsity squad all four years i think you said you were was it six seven by the time you were in high school so you were pretty pretty big right <clears throat> yeah yeah I, I was invited to the the NBA Players Association camp for the top 50 players in the country my senior year. Uh, I was regularly listed in the top 100 you know, All-American uh, players in the country for my class. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I was, uh, you know, I did play all four years of varsity basketball. Um, we won three championships, went to the championship game every year I was there. So we had a great program. I kind of was very, for I was very fortunate to have, uh, Gary Hall uh, was my coach. He's uh, been a very successful coach since then as well. He's coached many uh, 
college and uh, in professional players over the years. He's still coaching, you know, 30 something years uh, at this point. <clears throat> he also coached Grant Hill, uh, many players that went to Duke and ACC schools. So, you know, I learned a lot uh, from him about basketball, about life. I think, you know, I think we learned, we learned so much about, about life from playing mm. sports, especially team sports. Uh, and I feel like I learned just so much about, about uh, working together with people, teamwork, leadership, uh, playing, you know, when, when it's the right time to be a, a role player, when's the right time to be step up and try to, you know, lead the team, uh, you know, integrity, you say what you do, do what you say. Right. And, uh, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's good for so many reasons in real estate and business. I think it's just fantastic because it sets you up to uh, succeed because you've understood, you've learned so much about, you know, one of the things that's really important in business is, uh, you know, EQ, right. The emotional quotient. I think there's, there's a lot of talk about that concept, you know, five, 10 years ago, and just kind of hasn't been talked about much lately, but it is so much of it is putting yourself in the other person's shoes and understanding what matters to them and finding ways to, you know, finding areas where you have common ground. Uh, and, uh, so you can align your priorities and work towards a goal. Uh, you know, when you have people and you have, uh, you know, near the workplace, so, uh, so a lot of those things, I just feel like I learned, I learned a lot. I feel like I got a, a great experience, uh, both in high school, uh, beyond high school. And, uh, mm. yeah, it's just, it's just fun. I had a lot of fun and very fortunate to have been in a place with a lot of great people. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. Well, this is a huge part of your life, and I know that this is a, a, ultimately a conversation about sort of real estate and development, but I want to try to cover this base because I think it's a really cool part of your life that obviously you've just alluded to as has taught you so many lessons that you've brought forth right into business, into real estate, and so forth. But for the listeners, sure. um, you know, we're not only talking about high school sports here, but we're talking about D1 college play. We're talking about becoming a professional basketball player. We don't necessarily have to dive into the, the depths of all those details, but what were a few of those stops um, starting with the college play um, and then obviously ending sure. in, in uh, your professional tenure? What did that look like? Um, what did you kind of learn along the way? Any nuggets that you can think back to? Well, there's lots of nuggets, a lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, you know, for, I, I played for Fordham University, which is the Atlantic 10 conference. Uh, at the time, it was a very strong kind of an up-and-coming conference. Uh, our team, Fordham, had just gotten into the conference, I think, one or two years prior to my arrival. <clears throat> and it was still a transitional period. You know, having had uh, the being fortunate enough to have a lot of success in high school, um, I was walking into this program thinking that I was going to be able to uh, really help lead the change that was necessary in the program to go from kind of the bottom of the of the conference to uh, to being more competitive, maybe the top of the conference. Um, <clears throat> I didn't realize, you know, how tough that sort of thing was because I was 17, 18 years old. Uh, you don't, you don't, you don't quite understand what's necessary. And uh, so we had a, we had a tough couple of seasons. Um, I, I, I feel like it was one of the lower points, I think, in my life. Uh, we you know, haven't gone from being a kind of a top successful high school player to being on a college team. I think we won. We may have won four games my my first year, uh, and then maybe five or six the second year. Right, we were, you know, five and twenty-two, <laughs> so mm. we were just getting our yeah. tails kicked. Uh, and when you experience something like that, I think it's very easy to to want to want to run away, right? Want to leave, want to exit. Um, and I had never been in a position where I. Uh, where I was faced with that type of challenge right before, because I'd only ever played on a successful team. I'd only ever been a good player, you know? So I think it was a really a great learning experience for me because it, you know, it was just this one challenge after another. And so that went on for three years. Um, and 
it culminated in an op and this is a short, really short story, but we were playing at University of Massachusetts. The, the coach and I had had some differences uh, the summer before my junior year. And uh, he decided not to play me uh, that year. As a result, he, uh, you know, he, he didn't want to play me that much. And I was one of the better big men on the team. And I probably deserved to play a little bit more, but it was what it was. Uh, but we get to this game at University of Massachusetts. We'd never beaten University of Massachusetts. Uh, never beaten them on their home court uh, at all either. And we, uh, so he, anyways, we're playing the game where we're, it's very close, it's back and forth. Uh, suddenly, all the players in my position foul out. And, uh, and so he has to put me in the game. So he puts me in the game. The coach puts me in the game. And I scored five points. It had five rebounds, tipped the ball, and at the buzzer to win the game. Uh, fast forward, you know, five days later, we're sitting in a, in a hotel room in, uh, in Philadelphia. And he brings the whole team into the room. And he basically tells, tells everybody in the room, he says, hey, you know, John Pugh earned his scholarship uh, at UMass the other night. You may never step foot on the floor again for the university uh, for Fordham University, but he earned his scholarship that night. So he was trying to chase me off the team, trying to get me to quit. Oof. And um, I remember thinking to myself, man, like what that like what's what is that? Like, it was a weird, it was a weird experience. I didn't wasn't sure what to think of it, you know, being a 19, 20 year old kid. Uh, I came to the conclusion I was gonna quit. <clears throat> and uh, and I didn't quit. I just finished the season. And uh I'm sitting there at home, you know, thinking about what, what my next steps are and everything. And, and uh, it's, you know, it's about a month, a couple of weeks, a month after I got home, middle of June, uh, suddenly I get a call and the coach had been let go. He'd been fired. And they were bringing on a new coach who was a former NBA coach who I knew from a previous uh, big man camp was a, uh, was a great uh, great coach, fantastic work working with big men. He worked with Shaq, worked with Patrick, Patrick Ewing, a lot of great big men over the years. And um, anyways, I was super excited. So I gave it everything I had for my senior year. I, I worked my butt off all summer and ended up becoming captain of the team my, my senior year at Fordham. We had a successful team. Uh, you know, we, we won as many games as we lost. And uh, so it was a happy ending. He also Helped, uh, you know, at the end of that season, he helped me uh, prepare for free agent camp out in Oregon, uh, where, you know, it was some of the best players in the country, um, you know, guys in the NBA, guys playing overseas. Uh, it's a collection of, uh, it's in Eugene, Oregon, the basketball, United States Basketball Academy. Steve Nash was there. Uh, just a whole list of Mike Dunleavy, the whole list of great players. And so, uh, so the coach sat me down. We went through this whole, um, we went through this whole uh, workout regime I had for about two months prior to that camp. And I knew because uh, there's the assistant coach, uh, Jean Prelude, who's now head coach in Division One. He sat me down. He played successfully in Europe and Italy for many years, and he gave me this program. And uh, he said, "Okay, if you work out twice a day, you lift weights." you know, five days a week, you run sprints every day, you do, you know, you, you basically very scientifically laid out, Hey, you need to be able to do these three things, right? Really, really well, mm -hmm. practice them, get strong, you'll show up, you'll have success. And, uh, I sat, you know, I, I, and I did everything exactly the way he told me because I believe, I believed in his system. I knew he knew exactly what he was talking about. And as a result, I went, I went to that camp and I never played better basketball. I uh, showed up. Ed O'Bannon was my roommate. Uh, he was also one of my teammates, and so he uh, he was uh, really helpful with me. I, I uh, helped him out. He helped me out. Um, and just just an awesome guy, great guy. And, uh, he was, I believe, he was the number one pick in the draft in '99, something like that, a year or two before uh, that camp. And uh, anyways, just a great time. Played a lot of great basketball and got a job playing professional basketball. I ended up in Australia. Had a had an amazing experience there. Went down to Melbourne, Australia. Um, I did end up getting injured, which was unfortunate, but was uh, you know really lucky to have played down there. We went to the championship game. I was the MVP of the team, and uh, just had a lot of fun. Had a lot of fun. Got to see the world, and uh, and it was uh, one of those things that you know very grateful for. Uh, and you know, got to know people in Melbourne. Got to know people all over the country. And uh, like I said earlier, like, you know, when you when you can find ways to 
see like overlapping, like uh, really reach out and understand what people's priorities are, you can find ways to work together, right? Work together and have success together. And I think that's like the, just the biggest thing, the biggest lesson I've taken away from my basketball experience. And it's allowed me to be successful in business and in, uh, in real estate development as well. Well, that's a uh, man. That's an incredible. I don't even know what to say because that's such an incredible story. But I, I think one of the things, one of the threads, at least, that came out of that was something you mentioned to me about it. That that time at the um, free agent camp, moving through your professional tenure, you you got to this yeah. point where you decided to apply mm -hmm. yourself a hundred percent. You were no longer afraid of success, and it was this big shift. Mm -hmm. I think from the early years at Fordham. And it's almost like that switch was flipped after working with with some of the successful folks around you, and clearly you've taken mm -hmm. that forward in, in in business and life and raising your, uh, you know your your son and your family uh, and so forth. But um, it's it's very fascinating to me that something as quote unquote simple as basketball can really force that <clears throat> change in you. And I think that you you wave that <laughs> banner quite a bit because it's so true. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's it's. Uh... Yeah, that's a that's a that's an important point. Like that switch kind of went on, uh, flipped on. Whereas uh, I think there was a long, many years of my life, I was afraid. I was afraid, afraid of success. I think you know, I I had been told from such a young age that I was going to be this amazing prodigy in basketball, this amazing basketball player. That I was some part of me held was holding back, right? Um, because you know, if I didn't give 100%, that I always knew I could, I could do better, right? Or I'd have some excuse, right? And so, at some point, I recognize you, you, you have to recognize that you know, and I think it really does have a lot to do with who you're surrounded by, right? If you're surrounded by people who are working towards big goals that really care about making an impact on our on our society and our culture, I think you're much more likely to uh, to step up, right? And to find ways to uh, to add value to others, but and to, and to discard those excuses, that those limiting kind of thoughts that, that hold us all. I mean, everybody suffers from it. Every, I mean, to this day, everyone, you know, I, I, I suffer from it. Everybody suffers from that. But you have to find ways to focus, right, on what matters the most and then drive towards those things and, uh, and believe that you can do it. And I think uh, some amount of success, having some amount of success at a young age really helps with that. But anybody can do it. If you just drive a little further, a little, a little bit, just put a little more effort in, if you just commit a little bit more every day to try to get better, try to improve, you can get there, I think. It's, but it's just a matter of having just a little bit of that taste of success and knowing that you deserve it and you work for it and you you own that success, right? It's, it's a difference between owning success and walking into it, right? And I, I think that's the difference between successful entrepreneurs and people who kind of try a little this and a little that and nothing ever kind of works out for them. I think it's really a, it's a mindset thing. So I feel fortunate to have had learned some of those lessons. Well, let's, let's pivot away from basketball into real estate. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, you know, I could talk Just about kidding. basketball all day long, um, but, <laughs> but, too, but, 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 but I would love to hear about your, your path into the real estate space. And, and from what I know, it wasn't a straight line, not that it ever is a straight line, but what, what was the, yeah. um, what was the impetus to get into real estate and did it begin at any particular time in your life or did you just sort of find your way? into the into the real estate industry yeah I, I didn't really know anything about real estate um my childhood other than that one thing i mentioned when somebody built a, a subdivision in my backyard um i think my first real interaction was that i was a young person in my 20s and i dated a, a girl and her father was a real estate developer who built the subdivision i grew up in uh and i just remember getting to know him a little bit and thinking to myself i can do that you know, why, why can't I uh, be in a position to be able to create places for people to live, work, and play? Like, I think that's fantastic, right? So that was something that was just this, this again, another light bulb moment that kind of went on. And then I said to myself, well, how do I do that? And I, I wasn't really sure kind of the direction to take. And so I, so I ended up, I, I studied finance uh, at Fordham University, worked on Wall Street for about five years. Uh, you know, I ended up 
working with my boss, we designed a, uh, a piece of software. It was for, for trading uh, institutional and proprietary traders on Wall Street. Guys that were doing algorithmic trading, high, high frequency trading. And uh, so I learned a ton about the design process through that experience. And at the end of it, I kind of came to the conclusion like this was a great experience because of the design process. But what I was designing wasn't something I was passionate about. So that led me to kind of start thinking about what's, what can I do next? Um, I went on a trip to Europe, uh, came back to 500 pictures and, you know, 495 of them were uh, buildings. <laughs> this is around the same time. Another friend, another friend uh, went to uh, this graduate program. Um, this like, it's called the career discovery program at Harvard University. It's a six week program where you go and you, experience the design studio um at the best the you know, design school in the country and uh heard about that and you know had that experience traveling and made the decision to quit my job and, and go to architecture school so that was uh, a huge leap but you know the other thing is i saw my father my father's an engineer who designed ships for the navy he spent his whole you know whole career working on on you know defending the country and creating something that's people can use right that's uh valuable and meaningful and uh recognize that you know what i was doing on wall street wasn't wasn't what i wanted to do and i wanted to create things that you know tangible things that people can can touch and feel and see and uh so that was really some of those were some of the things that led me to to get into real estate but it was through this experience with architecture and it always been I always enjoyed drawing and painting and it was uh something that had always kind of kept i would say on the back burner to some extent and then i really fully engaged with it and was fortunate enough to end up at mit uh, which is one of the best programs in the country for architecture and uh what an amazing place to spend three and a half years. Uh, yeah. Super fortunate to have had some great experiences, be surrounded by some really amazing people and uh, people that challenge you, right? Challenge you every day uh, that inspire you. And uh, I think that was just, you know, and that decision-making process was led from my experience in decision-making when I was choosing a, the university college uh, for undergrad. I kind of learned that, you know, surround yourself with the absolute best people, right? And you'll, you'll be in a position to succeed. If you don't, if you just kind of, the higher you aim, the, the better your outcome is going to be. I mean, that's really the, mm -hmm. the moral of the story. So, um, yeah, so worked in architecture, got out of school, worked in architecture for a couple of years, got my registration, a registered architect, love design. Design is uh, something I remain super passionate about. Um, love the you know, placemaking, a big piece that we're going to talk about a little bit. That's something that's really important to me. I think so, a lot of that, um, a lot of my experience is working both in design school uh, at MIT, but also um, in my work experience uh, with ORG architects and urban designers. Uh, they were in Belgium and, and in Boston. Uh, really kind of got me excited about placemaking. That's kind of where, uh, where, you know, some of that interest kind of came from. So it's, uh, something that's, that's been of interest for a long time and then, you know, but kind of peripheral. And then suddenly I just, I identified what I wanted to do and just kind of dove into it. So, mm. well, let, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but you started Pew management about eight years ago, I believe. And you've, you've found success, um, in the Boston market. And more recently you've relocated with your family down, um, in Tampa, which we will talk about in a little bit. Um, one of the things that I've noticed about your writing, uh, specifically your LinkedIn posts and your <clears throat> newsletter is that you find, uh, you place a high importance on placemaking and you have a really great mind around where development architecture, sense of place, they all sort of intersect, right? And I'm curious where this interest um, in placemaking came from and, and, and how it really originated for you. Kind of a big question, but I'm curious where the kind of the, <laughs> the notion comes from and, and how it's been sure. able to find its way into your work and sort of what you're looking to do uh, moving forward as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I think a, a big big influence for me was my travel. I've traveled extensively internationally. A lot of that was some of that was with basketball, and then I continued that when I was at MIT. There was a series of design studios that took place: one in Paris, one in Thailand, uh, one in Finland. And uh, you know, I think we learned so much by traveling uh, and seeing different places and cultures and understanding how people live. Uh, and then also understanding historical precedents for design, uh, whether they be kind of urban places or just, you know, buildings in particular, or even, you know, prehistoric settlements, right? You know, there's all types of different placemaking that's taken place through the history of uh, civilization and, and the, all the cultures of the world. And I think a lot of that has influenced me just from seeing and experiencing it. And, uh, and then when I was at MIT, you know, there was a, I was doing my, my, my thesis, my architectural thesis with my, uh, my main advisor. I had some great advisors. Um, and uh, one of them, he was a brutalist, let's call him a brutalist architect. Uh, and he was focused on creating monumental buildings uh, that were kind of the opposite of what this group called the Congress for New Urbanism Um with their kind of, uh, you know, manifesto, they have a manifesto, what that is. And that's, he told me to go, go read about it. And then, you know, refute each one of these, uh, I think it was like 10 or so um, items in their manifesto. It was really focused on the human scale, design of the human scale, thinking about, you know, the connection with the city, thinking about uh, the relationships between different types of program, public and private, uh, institutional, et cetera. And I, I remember reading it thinking, I can't dispute these. These are actually really great ideas and they're really focused on creating great quality places. Uh, so, so that was the first time I had a kind of exposure to the Congress for New Urbanism. I ended up uh, becoming a board member and, and participating there for uh, somewhere along seven or eight years, uh, you know, very active in the chapter in New England, uh, which really enjoyed. Um, but those are some of the pieces. And then when I did my thesis uh, at uh, MIT, it was focused on the creation of places in the suburbs, right? In the suburbs of American cities and how so many of our cities are this endless kind of uh, field of uh, sprawl, right? And uh, they're, they're placeless, right? Everything's kind of the same, everything's generic. You know, how, how can we find ways uh, as developers, as architects to create places uh, within these large fields of, of endless sprawl. And, uh, and so the, we end up using, uh, my, for my thesis, I end up using a, uh, an approach of building, it's called a megaform, which is like this um, infrastructure sized um, building that uh, would be uh, created, that would create a large, you know, large open kind of plaza like a, an urban scale plaza uh so it was like a let's just call it a donut it's a donut you drop in the middle of the middle of uh and create a network of these donuts over the, the field of the city right so and that's actually what's started to happen around the country and this was 13 years ago but there's you know since then there's a densification that's been occurring in our entering suburbs that i find to be uh super interesting and uh you know there's in, in one example is in tampa it's called midtown tampa it's it's a it's a development by the bromley companies uh it's an example where there's there's work there's live there's play there's restaurants there's um there's shopping you know there's uh there's a whole foods but there's also office space and then it's all built around this this kind of town square type of concept that's in the middle and uh and to me, that sort of project is super uh, successful for a lot of reasons. And yeah, you can make arguments about the retail being a little generic and this, that, and the other. But overall, I mean, it's a great, it's a great example of what we need more of in our in our cities across the country. And there's been mm -hmm. other things that have been built that are similar to that in other places around the country, which I I think are fantastic. But you know. Coming back to that architectural thesis, that was really what where I started to dig into and learn about the history of placemaking and the history of the, the city square, the city plaza, mm. kind of the Roman foreman all the way up today. And um, yeah, so those are some of the things that just kind of got me excited and inspired by it. And it's nice to see some of these places, you know, taking place, uh, it, taking yeah. shape within our cities. Yeah. So. 
you've uh you've you've similarly spoken similarly uh excuse me spoken very highly about your experience um at samuel and associates as well as um consigli construction um as a professional sure. as a professional right and, and i'm curious uh, did you have any uh, touch points, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, with either of those groups where you were, f you know, finding yourself becoming further infused with this idea of placemaking and what that definition meant to you as a, as a, as an emerging and growing professional at the time? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the things I did prior to getting Samuels, I worked for ORG Architects and Urban Designers, and they were, you know, one of the projects we worked on was all about building a, a public uh, regional uh, safety and fire center and a team youth center, creating a, a city square there. Uh, and that was an experience, a design experience that I, I learned a lot from uh, thinking about the, you know, the urban, urban realm and the space around and between buildings, right? Not just the buildings themselves. And then at Samuels, uh, it was my, the bulk of my work was focused on the redevelopment of 401 Park, formerly known as the Landmark Center in the Fenway neighborhood. Uh, it's a large, uh, at the time it was a million square foot asset, uh, office, retail, uh, movies, uh, parking garage. And it was an old Sears Roebuck catalog building, which was uh, kind of the cross between, at one point, back built in 1929, it was an Art Deco, beautiful building. Um, and we were redeveloping it, uh, you know, taking, totally reimagining the ground floor retail, reimagining, you know, the surface parking lots around it, uh, tearing down the parking garage, putting it underground, putting up 400 apartments. So it was, a, you know, 1.3 million square foot uh, project that <clears throat> was really sprawling, but the experience at Daniels was fantastic because they were, they initially came from a retail um, background, right? So they, the previous generation owned a variety of shopping centers. So they had a, they gave a lot of thought to programming and merchandising and what should be next to what and how kind of the, the customer would experience those different shops and that place as a result of, you know, what was, what was, uh, what was the anchor at the end of, you know, at the end of the walkway and what, what was the draw, right? So, there's a lot of placemaking involved with retail because of, you know, a lot of those kind of decisions you have to make. So they were just like masters at it. Right. And they were, <clears throat> they still own a large part of the neighborhood in the Fenway. And so we would sit with the architect and, and the other senior teammates, there, team members, and we would talk through, uh, you know, what is where today and what are some of the potential tenants we could bring in. And then how can we connect these spaces and make, you know, make the overall uh, experience for both visitors and residents and the people working in the offices, you know, how can we improve that and really make it a destination, make it a, a great place. Fenway being already itself, Fenway Park being its own great place, but, you know, really taking that neighborhood and taking it to the next level. And that's uh, some you know, experience I definitely very uh, grateful for. Mm. Uh, and then you asked about Consigli Construction. Uh, Consigli Construction is a family uh, family owned business that um, focus was really is really on high quality um, design and projects. And they've built a great reputation over many years, over more than a hundred years. <clears throat> and uh, you know, my the project that I was brought in to work on was the Harvard uh, Harvard University Campus Center. Uh, redevelopment of that. It was really a large renovation um, where completely redoing multiple floors while the building was operating. It was half full. Um, so it was a ton of construction logistics, a ton of coordination with a variety of stakeholders within the university and the public. Um, but ultimately, it was this amazing, great place. And again, it was another historic building uh, designed by J.L. Cert, who's a famous modernist architect. Uh, I think that was built, I want to say it was built in 1959, if I remember correctly. And uh, it's, you know, reinforced concrete design, kind of a brutalist design, but the architects uh, did a fantastic job really breaking down the ground floor and then creating this promenade, which would draw people through the building, into the building and through the building and a variety of retail uh, experiences and then connecting out to the student dorms and the, you know, the street group beyond. But I was fortunate to be, uh, you know, on the senior leadership team for the Consigli Group, and we were, you know, coordinating with the architects and the and Harvard University really closely, and uh, just a great experience in placemaking and actually like taking an idea that was 
the result of a great design um, and then taking that and actually bringing it forth into the world. So learned a ton about construction, uh, working with Consigli for about three years and then had already, you know, worked as a designer and, and worked on the owner side. So it was great to kind of have that round that experience out and then also be a part of the team actually bringing something about mm. in the field. So that yeah, was fun. So. I, I did not think about this until just now, but I feel like you could easily yeah. sli slide into a uh, lecturer, professor at any <laughs> any high quality architecture and design school at any moment, yeah. uh, just based on, <laughs> on some of the things. Nice you, to you say. You speak, Thank you. you. You speak very well about all of these topics, which I really appreciate. Um, and, and it kind of makes me, it pulls my mind in one direction, which is to say you have you have a history and you have uh, these experiences around the world, mm -hmm. being able, being fortunate enough to travel for different reasons so far throughout your life. You have had the opportunity to work with some amazing groups in the industry. Um, obviously you're, you um, are running your own business today, but um, this, this thoughtfulness that's connected between your travels and sort of the sense of place and, and the literal architecture um, of a, of a place wherever that is in the, in the world, um, is something that you always have at the ready for conversation. And I really appreciate that. So with that in mind, if there are students listening or young professionals listening that, uh, maybe need like a top five or a top three hit list that, you know, in your eyes, they need to go see, um, and why, what are, uh, what are a couple areas that come to mind for, for those listeners? Sure. I, um, I think it's, you know, a lot of them are, you know, they've been, they've been talked about, but they're just great places that you need to, you need to go. Right. Like one of them is Trafalgar Square in London. Um, you know, it's one of the main destinations of tourists in London, but it's like the heart of, of the city, right. When you're in, in, in Trafalgar Square, you feel the energy of the city. It's a variety of people. Yeah, there's a lot of tourists there, uh, you know, similar to Times Square, but there's historic history there. There's, um, you know, the scale of the place, similar to uh, Piazza Navona in Rome, right? Piazza Navona in Rome is different, though, because it's more of a, uh, it feels like a place where, and it is a place where the locals are going out for dinner, where they're spending their time in the evening with their family and friends and meeting, meeting people. Uh, but the scale is similar in terms of the, the size of the, of the, of the place. It's a large open, but, but enclosed outdoor space with a variety of artistic and historical uh, references, whether it be cult sculpture and art or, uh, or some of the buildings and the facades there. Um, and then, you know, the, the Tuileries and the Louvre, uh, Paris are just a fantastic um, example. You know the French garden style, which is something that's uh, I've always found kind of inspiring. But it's also this representation of the history of the country itself, right? And uh, you know the Louvre was mm -hmm. the former palace of the um, the emperor and the king prior to that, and it was um, the, the center of power, right, for the city and for the empire, the French Empire. And uh, just seeing that, experiencing that history, I think is important, but it's also, you know, again, it's this, it's this amazing place that is on, it's on the list of thing, places you have to go as a visitor, but it's, um, but there's something about it that's magical, right? And there's a combination of, um, there's a combination of this public and private kind of influence, right? Similar to Piazza Navona, which is, circled by uh, shops and restaurants. Uh, the Tuileries has, uh, you know, Vendome, that whole area right nearby. And it's all just kind of the shopping and, and, and food kind of experience. So there's just like places like that I, th I, I love. Uh, and then the last one I think I'd mentioned is, is a place that we worked on when I was, we worked on an urban design for, was in, in Thailand, it's called Sukhothai, which is the ancient, ancient capital of Thailand. It was the first capital of Thailand before Bangkok. And uh, it's a one square meter uh, complex of temples and, uh, and living spaces that, um, 
want to say it was built, I want to say it was built in 1000 AD or so. So, you know, more than a thousand years ago and it's encircled by a wall, but just another, one of those places that you're in the heart of this jungle uh, and then you're experiencing these different places and, and it's been inhabited. A variety of people from the surrounding uh, community have, have basically gone and moved in there. They're squatters. And so we were brought in to help work with the, the, the local government to think about ways in which we can provide infrastructure for the people that were already living there while also diverting some of the traffic and, and other things. But just a great place, an amazing place in uh, in Thailand, in an area that not everybody goes, so that's kind of an off yeah. the off the off the map kind of place, but great off place. the beaten path. So if so, if anyone is planning <laughs> their design slash architecture slash place making trip, <laughs> he that's he right. has the punch list. He'll get it to you. Yep. Uh, well, John, we um, that's right. Yeah, we we can't talk about real estate or development in 2023 without talking about this elephant in the room. Uh, interest rates rising, difficult capital conditions, construction costs. There's a lot of stuff going on right now that makes it very difficult to do a deal, to do development, let, let alone a, a good development project or a, a thoughtful development project like so many want to do. Um, your outlook, I have found to be very um, realistic um, or pragmatic, depending on how you want to say it. Um, <laughs> Your view of the negatives today are also balanced by an optimism that I think I would love to 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 shine a light on and just chat about and get your thoughts on briefly. So, um, sure. what do you feel like, in your words, what are you seeing in real estate today, um, and how are you choosing to focus your time when it comes to opportunities at this point? Uh, yeah, so it's a super challenging environment. I've never experienced a an environment in real estate in the real estate industry that was this challenging i think when uh we were just kind of coming out of things in the early 2010s when i entered uh the business uh of architecture was quite an experience right because it was still slow and people were still kind of feeling their way around to figuring things out and then the Fed, Federal Reserve, uh, you know, we've, we've been cutting interest rates for years and, and we've been on a, and, you know, until two years ago, um, year and a half ago. And so today is a challenging, super challenging environment uh, for real estate development. Um, I think there's a variety of challenges. Construction costs are too high. Interest rates are too high, et cetera, et cetera. There's people calling, you know, everyone's been calling for a recession for at least a year now. So going to happen at some point. Um, I think what the, you know, what we're looking at today is, is trying to find opportunities uh, that are, uh, whether they're existing cash flowing properties that we can invest in in the great areas that can allow for future larger redevelopment plays. We're very interested in those types of properties, but also finding, you know, smaller opportunities that are going to enable us to get involved in the city of Tampa, city of St. Pete, uh, as well as uh, we continue to do work up in the Boston area, which is, uh, I think, I'd say a little bit less risky just from a uh, from a risk reward standpoint. But I absolutely love Tampa. I love St. Pete, and I think there's uh, there's a lot of opportunity here over the years and over the in the future because of the fact that there's just thousands and thousands of people coming here, and they're going to continue to come here because there's so many great things about the the, the, the Tampa Bay area. Um, so I'm excited, super excited to be involved in the industry here in Tampa. Um, but one of the things that I've recently kind of shifted towards is looking to buy uh, businesses in the real estate, you know, real estate related areas, uh, anywhere, anywhere from construction and design services um, to education, uh, also real estate education type of platforms, online platforms. Uh, looking at creating a larger platform to build a you know a larger business off of. So digital marketing is also an important piece of that, right? So how do we how do we kind of connect all these pieces and add value um, to to uh, from one business to another? <clears throat> so I think there's a lot of ways in which we can start to build uh, something so that when the economy begins to turn upwards again in the future, which I'm confident it will. 
uh, we'll be in a position to capitalize on that. It's, it's, you know, it's a relationship business, right? Everything that we do mm-hmm. in real estate is relationship driven and, you know, creating those long-term relationships uh, and also investing in cash flow and businesses and assets is going to be what we're going to be doing for the next yeah. two to five years. That being said, we're excited to get back into ground up real estate development uh, when the opportunities uh, presents itself. So. You use the term micro bets rather than going all in on these big projects right now, which, um, as you said, risk yeah, reward. Yeah. Uh, I liked how you right. use the the that term though, micro bets. You know, be it sure. uh, smaller deals, uh, you know, hard assets, whatever that looks like. The idea of pulling together mm-hmm. a couple different income streams so that you're not putting all of your eggs in one development basket it seems sure. like the move to make, especially as a as a real estate yep. professional right now. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're, we're talking about our my, the newsletter uh, we have a little earlier today. Um, and in the newsletter, we're talking about the merchant build, um, you know, that that model, that business model. And so that's been to date, that's been, you know, the model that I've employed with my business partners and investors to create value, to create wealth for for our team. And, you know, today it's a real challenge to take that approach, which, you know, the merchant builder just quickly is um, is finding a piece of property, designing, permitting that property, financing it, building, leasing it up, and then selling that property. Uh, so, so you build to a, you know, build to a 7% cap rate, sell it at a 5% cap rate, uh, everybody wins, right? So that's been the model thus far. That model doesn't work today because interest rates are too high, construction costs are too high. As a result, your cap rates are going to be, uh, they're going to need to be much higher than they currently are. And they're, you know, they're just not there right now. So, uh, so as a result, you know, I've really been shifting to, you know, that term, you know, micro bets looking for smaller opportunities to invest in, you know, things that are growing, things that we can work with uh, the operators to help them grow businesses to help them grow. Uh, But also things like restaurants, local businesses uh, here in Tampa. So, building out that network, building investor network, and uh, always excited to connect with people um, and find new opportunities, business opportunities together. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm also, what, what, what is also coming to mind to me is, and this relates to sort of the general health, I would say of the, of the development industry right now, the real estate industry across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this, what I, what I feel like has become an emerging topic in the development scene. Um, and knowing some of your background at MIT and some of the work you did on your thesis, um, uh, I'm curious to get your take on this as we start to wrap up. And that is this idea of our country's downtowns. Um, I've seen various articles come out about that over the last year, maybe even more so in the last six months, there's a big, uh, uh, alarm bell going off right now with regards to office space. Um, so feel yeah. free to take this any way you want, but I know, uh, I know you, you surely have a few unique perspectives on this. So, um, you know, sure. Tampa's, Tampa's downtown, Denver's downtown, Boston's downtown. I mean, our downtowns yeah. are changing. Um, what are your, what are sure. your thoughts? What's your take on that right now? Yeah, I, I think, um, downtowns are such an important part of our cities, uh, historically, the heart of the city, right? Uh, and I think that's not going to change. I think our so much of the downtown, uh, you know, the reason for a downtown is the economy, right? And the economy, the economics of office space and office buildings. And what happens when you've got fifty percent of those that space empty, right? And when there's less reason for people to be there. Um, that's a serious concern if you're an office owner for obvious reasons, but as an urbanist, as someone who cares about the future of our cities uh, and the economic viability of our cities, I think it's a super serious problem and challenge that we have to deal with today. Um, I think people are taking steps. There's different cities. I know Boston's been trying to uh, assist with the conversion of, of office space to residential, things like that. I don't know how much that's going to actually do uh, for uh, for cities. I think when you really think about it, so many people are, have been willing to pay so much more in rent to live near their office. Uh, 
if their office is no longer downtown or if they're working remotely, then what is the impetus to pay all that extra rent to have less space? You know, what, what, what's their argument for that? Um, I, so I think we're at, a, we're at the beginning of a serious shift in the way our cities um, uh, are going, you know, the form of our cities and the way that they're going to evolve. I think there's, I kind of mentioned earlier, there's a distributed network model uh, where there's a series of high density nodes where, we're going to have office, live, work, and play uh, distributed around the suburbs, around the entering suburbs, but also even out into the exurbs and beyond. And uh, and those nubs are going to serve as hubs, social hubs, professional hubs. Um, but I think there's going to be less and less need for a, just a specific one downtown. I think. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to, like I said, they're not going to go away, but I think the, the, the dominance of the downtown is, is going to change, right, and evolve. And I think um, I think there's a, it's already started to happen, right? You can easily look at developments around a place like Tampa. Like I just mentioned that Midtown uh, project that was built. That's probably two miles from downtown Tampa. It's still in Tampa proper, but that's a great example of it, right? There's uh there's the Reston Town Center in Washington, D.C., in the suburbs near where I grew up. The Reston Town Center was a new urbanist design concept where they basically built this, you know, city center in the middle of the suburbs. And now it's connected via um, via the metro, which is the transit system there. And so you've got like you've got all these different nodes. You can talk about places in Boston and Waltham, like there's high density office corridor there um, as well. High tech and life sciences are there. Um, so there's there's these places around the country, you know, all cities uh, around the city uh, that have um, already begun to, to to sprout up and to develop. And I think some sense, I think some amount of leadership around focusing on political leadership as well as design and, and development leadership around uh, building and, and, and fostering those things in a qu high quality ways is necessary. So I'm hoping hoping and, and planning on working on more of those types of projects because I think they're really necessary, right? For us to create great places to live, work and play. And, and I, and I mm -hmm. emphasize the live, work and play thing because you know, the, you know, the concept of the 15 minute city, like we want to be able to get to, you know, your quality of life is directly impacted by how much time you spend sitting in traffic, right. Or sitting on the train or sitting, not spending time with your loved ones or on your, your physical, mental or personal health, right. Or on your professional health, right. Yeah. In terms of your, your, your job or your business. So the more time we can spend um, focused on the things that we care about, uh, the better our lives are. Right. And so that's all very much tied into uh, how our cities develop over, uh, over the next, you know, five to 10 years. And that, that's going to impact our, our lives as well as our economy, I think, in a meaningful way. So, um, so, so I'm looking for that leadership and also hoping to provide it as well. So, John, it's been a pleasure hearing your your take on so many things. Um, obviously, a, a very well-educated real estate professional <laughs> over here. Uh, I always like to end with a couple rapid-fire questions to lighten things up as oh. we as we bring this thing home. So, the first one I, I'm going to throw your way is, in your opinion. What is the best basketball movie of all time that we need to go watch this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone always says Hoosiers, and I almost, I almost, I almost in my mind, you know, Hoosiers is a good, is a good uh, movie, but that's kind of old school. Let's, I, and White Man Can't Jump's an old movie too. But the, the thing I, I love about White Man Can't Jump nice. is, first of all, I was offended, right? Because I'm a white guy and I can jump, right? Uh, <laughs> but second of all, it was, it's about friendship. Uh, some of the hardship that we suffer and then finding ways to, to deal with each other and respect each other and win together. And that, that to me is what basketball is all about. Right. And it's also what life's all about. So mm, I definitely recommend what yeah. make it Joe. <laughs> um, and then another, another key question I, I, I typically ask, cause it's just, oh, I always love the answers is, is one book that you would recommend right now and, and why? Sure. I mean, I, I've, I've got a heck of a, I've got a long list of books. Um, but one book, which is super practical that really helped me transform things in a lot of ways is the miracle morning. And I know it's widely recommended, but it's just one of those books that lays out thoughtfully lays out a very clear 
set of things that can be done in a manageable way to transform your life, right? To basically take you from a position where you're not in charge of, you know, what's your destiny to being able to kind of focus on what you want to create in your life and, and go get it. And so I think the, the miracle warning is definitely in that book. It's mm-hmm. by Hal, Hal Elrod. So nice. I'd recommend yeah, we'll that be sure one. To- Excellent. Yeah, we will add that into the show notes so anyone can take a look at that as well. Well, John, it's been cool. uh, it's been a pleasure. Like I said, there's uh, there's only one more thing to do, and that is to roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the uh, listeners and viewers what you're up to and where they can find you online. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure being here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, so I'm looking to connect with other entrepreneurs, investors looking to expand their business opportunities in real estate and beyond. Uh, currently looking to purchase companies in the real estate design services and construction space. Uh, So let's connect, connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or check out my website, uh, pughmgmt, P-U-G-H-M-G-M-T.com. And I'd love to hear from you. And uh, my LinkedIn handle is John T. Pugh, John, D-O-H-N-T-P-U-G-H. Look forward to speaking with you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. We'll we'll be sure to get, we'll get everything linked on uh, in show notes and, uh, Man, it's been a pleasure. John, thank you so much for your time today. All right. Thanks, Chris. It's been fun. Take care. 